Good morning, church. You can be seated if you haven't already done so. Take out your copy of God's Word or turn in your copy of God's Word or turn on your copy of God's Word, however you have it before you, to Romans chapter 13. That's where we're going to be in just a few moments as we continue the series, How to Change the World. When you came in today, you should have received one of these little cups that has a piece of bread in it that will help you in the process of taking communion should you show choose later in our service. If you still need one of these, there are some deacons that have those available around you. You can maybe just slip a hand up even now and they can make sure you get one of those. Do me a favor, those of you that gathered here on our central campus, will you help me welcome those who are joining us in worship at our Six Mile Ministry Center and on our Lake Carroll campus and those who are joining us online. We're grateful for technology and the ministry that God's given us in our church. Well, we are in Romans chapter 13, and when I came to today's passage in Romans, realizing it would be Palm Sunday, I have to tell you, it was a little concerning for me because I thought, man, this is going to be hard to deal with this topic on Palm Sunday because Palm Sunday has a specific focus, as does this passage. This passage talks about how we are citizens of God's kingdom and how we live out that as a citizen of the kingdom of earth. I began to contemplate the reality of that, and I began to think of people like my new friend, Sandra. She visited our church for the first time on January 1st. I'll never forget because she came rolling in with a suitcase, and uh, she's still here today. We're so grateful for Sandra. But Sandra was born in Panama, so she's a citizen of Panama, but she's also a citizen of the U.S. because she's lived in New York for 40-plus years. And then I think about others like my friend Wafa, and Wafa was born in Syria, so she's a citizen of, of Syria, but she's lived here for a good while now, and she's gone through the process, like so many in our international church, to become a citizen of this nation, so she's a citizen of the United States of America. And so because we're such a diverse and multicultural, multi-ethnic church, there are people in our midst that are citizens of more than one country. But what we're going to see today is that all of us are citizens of two kingdoms. If you have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you have become a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. But we're also citizens of a particular kingdom here on earth. This world is not our home. We're just pilgrims progressing through, as John Bunyan taught us in that great work. But as we journey on, our king has given us instructions as to how we live in this kingdom. So... As I thought about that on Palm Sunday, fretting a little bit, I then remembered that Palm Sunday is all about the king <laughs> and, and how the people around him were acknowledging God as king. And so let me just read a, a few verses that describe that moment before we get to Romans. It's from John chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem, and they took palm branches. And so probably even right now in our preschool, the preschoolers are gathering with palm branches, and they're hearing the story about Palm Sunday and what that is all about. And it comes from this passage and others like it. And they went out to meet him shouting, Hosanna. Say that again, church. Hosanna. One more time. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the, what's the next word? King of Israel. Then Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it. As it's written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. 
And then I noticed this verse. At, at first, his disciples did not understand all this. It was only after Jesus was glorified that they realized these things had been written about him and these things had been done to him. See, Jesus constantly preached the kingdom, though we don't often talk about it that way today. That was his message. Mark chapter 1, at the very beginning in verse 15, it says, The time has come, he, Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And then we'll remember, particularly on Friday, when Jesus was on the cross, there was a sign that Pilate demanded be over his head, and it was written in three languages. Do you remember what the sign said? It said, King of the Jews. And in fact, at our house of prayer on Wednesday night, I read the passage from, from John and, and reminded you that um, the Jewish leaders came to Pilate and they said, hey, can you change that and say, he said he was King of the Jews? Because we don't really believe he was King of the Jews. Pilate said, no, I've, I've written what I've written. You see, both the followers of Jesus and those who crucified him understood that he believed he was the king. But then and now, people confuse what it means to be a part of the kingdom. Even after the resurrection of Christ, those that knew him best, the disciples gathered around Jesus, and, and this was just before he ascended into heaven, just before he was glorified, and this is what it says in Acts 1, verse 6. Then they gathered around him and they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? In other words, all right, now that you've done everything you've done, are you going to do what we want you to do? Are you going to give us the kind of kingdom we want here? And I feel like that's a lot of how we live today, even as those of us who profess Christ followers. We're going to see, even at the end of this message, that we are created in God's image, and yet we live our life as if we've created God in our image. And, and really, what he does and, and how he lives should conform to what we want. And yet, that's not what this is about. And so there's probably no better time than the day where Jesus went into Jerusalem and was held as king, and the people of God shouted Hosanna, that, that we pause and think about what it means to be under his kingship while living in a temporary home. And the older I get, the more I want to make sure I get this right. And so I want to pray again, and if you're new to our church family and to, to what we do here at Mission Hill, you may be thinking, you guys pray a lot. I, I'm so glad you noticed that. That really is a part of who we are. It's a part of our DNA. And so while we sing, we pray. Around our songs, we pray. In the message, we pray. At the end, we pray. And, and, and we believe there's power in prayer because that's when we communicate with God so clearly. So would you join me once more in prayer? And, you know, you can have your eyes open or closed. It really doesn't matter. I want to tell you something I, I occasionally do that I'm about to do. And, and you may want to do it too. Occasionally, I'll just, as I'm praying... I'll open my hands at some time just to say, God, I want to be filled with you and everything you've got in this moment. And then maybe I'll raise my hands and I'll pray, God, I, I, I want everything I do to praise you. And then, then maybe I'll just stretch out my arms and say, God, I, I, I want to be surrendered to whatever you want as your will as a result of this time together. Now, if you're doing that with your eyes closed and you're seated by somebody else, please be careful 
uh, when you extend your arms because we're not dealing with the passage on lawsuits and we don't want any of those to take place as a result of this prayer time. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, give us what we need. Teach us what we need to learn. Make us new. God, as we continue, and, and man, we're going to just be deep into your word. And I pray that whether or not it amounts to this in time, but in content and in context, your words will take priority over anything I say because there's power in your word. And so, Lord, I, I thank you for a church that really places that authority in the scriptures. So, Lord, in this moment, we do just ask you to just join us and meet us here, communing with us as we desire to hear from you. And, and Lord, we want to say again, everything we do, even this time, it's not about us and it's not about a preacher on a stage. It's, it's about you, Jesus. We want, we want to know you more. And so, Lord, here we are, surrendered, and, and we just ask that you would, um, you would have your way, as that old hymn says, have your own way in us, Lord, have your own way. Lord, again, I just want to pray, um, you know me, so thank you for grace, thank you for forgiveness, even as I cried out to you early this morning. And so I pray that the words I say in my thoughts would be pleasing to you and that the result of this, Father, I, I pray would be twofold. God, I, I pray that there would be many who, Lord, they are Christ followers, but they're not living submitted to you, the King. I, I pray that that would change today in the name of Jesus. But Lord, there are some who have never become followers of you. And I pray that that would change today as you call others to you in the name of Jesus. And I thank you for all of this. And, I, and that too, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I, I want to remind you of the context before I start reading in Romans 13, because we've been in this journey literally for months in the book of Romans. Some would consider this the most important book in the Bible because so much of Romans, the first 11 chapters deal with our salvation it's a book of soteriology, the, the study of how we are saved. It, it's that doctrine. It, it tells us things like the fact that we've all sinned and we've, we've fallen short of God's mark, his glory. And, and it, it tells us that the, the punishment of sin is death, but there's also a gift that's available. And the gift of God is, is life. And, and it tells us that God wants us to have the gift because it says in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates his love that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then Romans 10 tells us if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and, and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we can be saved. So it, it tells us why we need salvation. It, it tells us um, what salvation is. Uh, it, it justifies us. It makes it just as if we've never sinned. And then it tells us even how to get salvation. And that's all about doctrine and all about our convictions. And then there's a shift in Romans 12, and it begins to talk about our duties as those who follow Christ. And, and, and that's our lifestyle, how the convictions that we have result in a, a change in our life. The first part is kind of what's indicative, what we know 
Um, the, the second part is what's imperative, what God commands us to do, how we're supposed to live based on what we know. And, and that's when we learn that it's, it's, it's not simply what you know that makes a difference and helps you change the world. It's what you do with what you know. And, and Romans 13 is just a continuation of Romans 12 where it's talking about what we do specifically in the context of where we live because all of us are a citizen of somewhere. So listen to Romans 13 beginning in verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. Now, that's going to be really important. So I I know we kind of come in and out, and we're used to like 30-second memes on the Internet, and and so I may lose some of you. So I want you just to hear the Word of God from God again, just in a statement. For there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of a possible punishment, but as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes. Now, if we allowed you just to boo at any point during a message, I know you would be tempted to do that now, especially during this season. By the way, it's probably a good time for those of you that have not booed about paying taxes and you're looking forward to that refund, uh, do remember the Lord's house when you get that refund. Okay, this is why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. Wow. If revenue, then revenue. Mm. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And, and this is the word of God. <laughs> we, we live in a society that seems to have lost our understanding and respect for authority. R- really, in almost every facet, just ask a public school teacher. And it, it seems like the season that we've just come out of, the season that was rife with COVID and uh, electoral strife and and racial tension has has just increased this. Parents struggle with authority. Teachers, civil servants like even our law enforcement officials and, and certainly our elected leaders. So before we dive into this passage, it's important that you understand this isn't the only time that scripture talks about this issue. And 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 it has us to be mindful about those who are having authority over us. In fact, it's an early principle that's that's taught in Scripture early in the Bible, and it really begins with the first place of authority. Do you know where the first place of authority is? That was not a rhetorical question. Do you know where the first place of authority is? What What did God institute before he instituted anything else? The family, the home. So that's why one of the Ten Commandments says this, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Think about that. It's the first command with a promise. 
that we honor our parents. Kimberly and I are in a, a very different season of life right now because uh, we would have never imagined this, but both of our dads, who were always healthy, <laughs> preceded both of our moms, who've always been a little more sickly, in death. And, and so now, here in our city, we're, we're caring for our moms. And, um, and we feel it a privilege to honor them. Some of you remember, it was several months before he passed, but while my dad was suffering with a brain bleed and making no sense at all, and I was talking to him, and I was just uh, really just trying to love on him in the hospital. And at one moment, I just looked at him and said, Oh, I love you, Dad. And he just turned and looked at me with that stern face and said, Love your mama. <laughs> and so I'm like, yes, sir. And, and that's what we're doing. We're honoring our parents. But God told us to do that. And I would just remind you, because some of you, you may not have the relationships that we enjoy, and, and so it may be harder for you, but that doesn't take away the fact that this is from Scripture given to you. And by the way, parents... Um, that means God's given you authority. And one of the challenges in our society is that parents have abdicated authority. And one of the problems that school teachers have is that parents have abdicated authority. And um, I, I don't know what you're hearing from other places, parents and grandparents, but you have that authority in the home because it's unlikely your children will prioritize the things that they've watched you marginalize. But there are other context in scripture where it talks about authority. Let me give you those quickly. 1 Timothy 2 verse 1, Paul says, I urge you then first of all that petitions, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is our good, this is good and it pleases our Savior. So when we pray for, when we give honor to, when we respect those in authority, God likes that. Why? Because it pleases him, but he also wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And that's part of the way our testimony in doing that is that they do that. Titus chapter 3, verse 1, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be, pe excuse me, to slander no one. They didn't have this back then, but had they have it, it, they may have put in the verse, to slander no one, in parentheses, whether with your mouth or on Facebook. To be peaceable and considerate and always to be gentle toward everyone. First Peter 2, those were Paul, this is now Peter. Same kind of thing, verse 13. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish for those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Just think about that. When we honor authority, God's word says that we help further the things that are right. Goes on to say, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. What's the purpose of this? Why does God do this? For the application of Romans 12, I, I, I think we can see in Romans 13, he's applying some of those principles we've learned. Remember in Romans 12, when it, it says, remember, don't repay evil for evil, for vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. 
One of the things we know is that God has established government so that it may be the source to deal with that which is bad. Remember in Romans 12 when it says we need to do whatever thing is within us to live at peace with all people? One of the reasons God has established government is so that there can be peace in the world. I, I think Paul also wrote these things because he knew that Caesar would see these. If you think about from the Roman standpoint, the very reason Jesus was crucified is because of a fear, from the Roman standpoint, a fear that his followers would try to take over the government. The Jews didn't like Jesus, so from their standpoint, he was being crucified because he was claiming to be king, but among those Jews were some who were called Zionist, zealots. One of the followers of Jesus was even a zealot, Simon the Zealot. And they had an undisputed desire to try to take over the government. So Paul's writing this to, to help even the Caesar understand that's not what it means to be a Christ follower. Because we are citizens first and foremost of another kingdom. I want to just quickly give you three things about this passage of Scripture and illustrate it as we go. Uh, here they are. Uh, number one, authority, even governmental authority, is a part of God's design. I want you to see that. Number two, obedience to authority is one of God's demands. It's not optional. And number three, as citizens of God's kingdom, how we respond to authority, it really should be different. So let's deal with that first one. Authority, even governmental authority, is a part of God's design. So look again at verse 1. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority that which God has, but which, that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. That's a tough one for me. That's a tough one for me today in our country. It's a tough one for me as a student of history. But I don't think it's... A, it, it's near as tough for some of us as for some of my international friends who are part of our family that have come from countries that literally are persecuting Christians by taking their lives even today. It seems like in our country people fall into one of two categories. Some are kind of undisputed patriots and, and what, what the media might even try to call a Christian nationalist today. That their, their focus, their primary energy and effort in life is... God bless America. And, and they, they kind of look as if America is supreme and we can do no wrong. The other group seems to just live with an air of skepticism. So the way that works is if, if the people that I like and agree with me are in power, if they're the ones that have been elected, woohoo, God bless America. But if the other side gets in power and is elected, it's like, bless God, we got to get this thing back. And it's easy on either of these extremes, like most things in life, it's easy on the extremes to get out of balance and to get out of the will of God and to do the things differently than this passage teaches. You know, as always, you've got to decide whether or not you believe Scripture. And, and so... Again, this is a zone back in moment because we're kind of digging a little deep here. But this is something everybody's got to decide. Whether or not you believe that the Scripture, the Bible, is God's Word. But if you believe Scripture, um, then there's really only one logical response. 
You have to make decisions in your life and live according to the things that Scripture says. And, and so how do you do that in this passage? Because here we believe the Scriptures are true. We believe everything in this book is the Word of God and is applicable to our lives. So why would God say this? Why would he say that government is God's representative? That's what it says in verse 4. The one in authority is God's servant for the good. He gives us government's job description. So if you wanted to just write, write this down, there, there are two things that government should do. Number one, according to this passage, government should promote what is good. According to God's design, that's part of the plan for order. And the Bible says that God is a God of order, so government should be promoting what is good. And then secondly, government should be punishing what is bad. And what that does is that kind of reminds us of two big theological principles that guide how we live our life and really are the things upon which every government is founded. It's the idea, number one, that God is sovereign, that, that he is the ultimate so he's the reason we know there's a right and there's a wrong. He's the standard bearer. But secondly, it reminds us that man is sinful. It's that passage from Romans 3.23 that we've all sinned, that every one of us, even the best of us, are going to fall short of God's design. On our own, we'll mess things up. So, so what do we do when government doesn't seem to be promoting good <laughs> or it doesn't seem to be protecting us from evil? And I have to tell you, you can struggle with this whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. I, I mean, I can step aside for a second and go, man, I really liked a lot of President Trump's policies. But wow, I was really put off by some of his personal choices in his personal life. When I was a young man, I attended something called Boys Nation and I was very involved in government and really sat in the Rose Garden with President Reagan. But the guy I sat by was a guy named Bo Biden. He was with me at Boys Nation. And so I got to know him and hear about his family from him. And back in those days, here's what I, I looked at. It, it, it seemed like Joe Biden was a good man. But man, as, his, as our president... I really, really strongly disagree with a lot of his policies. It, it seems like sometimes he's promoting things that God's word causes evil. So what do we do? How, how do we balance this? Could, could Paul, who wrote these words, could he have imagined that there might one day be a bad government setting? Go ahead and laugh. Can you just make yourself laugh? Because if you knew what I was about to tell you, Ray, that would be funny. Let me just tell you who was the governmental leader around the time of the Apostle Paul's writing these words. It was a Caesar named Caligula. Most would say he's unfit to keep a pet, even to much so to run an empire. So let me just give you some of his greatest accomplishments. He had his mother and his brother killed to make sure they didn't ever challenge the right of his throne. He openly committed incest with not one, but three of his sisters. He frequently would cross-dress and go out in public. He decided that his favorite horse, Incititus, should be a senator. And so he installed him as a senator. You heard that right, his horse. 
I don't even know how a horse could vote. Do you? All in favor, say aye. Aye. Those opposed? You got it. But he liked his horse so much, you know what he did? He promoted him to pro-counsel. <laughs> Once he got so mad at the weather, he declared war on Neptune, the Roman god of the sea. And he ordered soldiers from the Roman army to whip the waves and bring home seashells like plunder from his domain. He had the heads of statues of deity removed and replaced them with a bust of his own. Often during the gladiatorial games, which were cruel enough, he would take random people from the crowds and throw them into the arena to be attacked by wild animals just to entertain himself. After this, you had Claudius, who may have seemed a little less crazy, but was just as cruel. And then he hands the throne over to Nero. By the way, when I say he handed the throne over to Nero, what I mean to say is that Nero's mom killed Claudius in his sleep so that Nero could replace him. Nero turns out to be one of the cruelest and most sadistic leaders of all. He intentionally, or at least it's believed so, set fire to Rome. And then as Rome burned, he sat on his balcony and played the harp as if it was a poetic moment. And then he blamed Christians for the fire. And he used that as part of his reasoning to host a garden party where every few feet... He would put Christians on poles and light them on fire to light the party. It was in this setting that Paul says, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority. God's plan does not always work out for our comfort, but he's always working for our good. Isn't that what we learned, Romans 8, 28? For we know that God works together for the good of those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose. It doesn't say it's going to be comfortable. You may hear that on TV or read that in some supposedly Christian books, but it's not biblical. God doesn't say you're always going to prosper. Sometimes he says you're going to experience pain, but he's always working for your good. So you have to trust him. But this passage says we also have to obey him. Obedience to authority is one of God's demands. So sometimes, as my little girl ha says, we have to suck it up, buttercup. And we have to do the right thing. It's always right to do right. We have to fulfill our obligations, is what it says in verse 7. What are those obligations? We owe the authorities something. Look at, again, verse 5. Therefore, it's necessary to submit to authorities not only because of possible punishment, but as a matter of conscience, because of who we are, because of what we believe, we're supposed to behave in a certain way. Isn't that what we've said the whole second part of Romans is about? Because of what we believe, this is how we behave. Why do most people say they don't want to come to church? You Christ followers don't behave like you say you believe. This is part of that. So what do we do? First, we submit to those in authority. And we do this as much out of conviction and conscience as we do just because they command it. Are there exceptions to this? Sure there are. And we see some of those biblically. We see Daniel and his friends, and they were, know what it's like to be thrown into lion's dens. We know what it's like for them to suffer punishment. 
We know the apostles because sometimes they did things that the government said they shouldn't do, were thrown into prison, and ultimately most of them were martyred for their faith. So there are times we may need to take a stand. I'll give you some examples. If a doctor was ever commanded that they had to break what they believed was the Hippocratic Oath and, for example, commit an abortion, taking a life, I, I think they could say, no, I'm not going to do that. If your boss at work says, we need you to cut this corner or kind of hide this true reality or shade these facts just so that the bottom line will be better, we'll get a better outcome, then, then I think, no, you should not do what they say. If as a pastor I were ever commanded by the government that I had to marry those who were from a homosexual lifestyle, I, I would, by God's grace, say, no, I'm not going to do that. If we were ever threatened under the penalty of law that we couldn't proclaim the good news of Christ, I would pray that all of us would say, no, bring it on. Even if it meant what we experienced several years ago when those Egyptian Coptic Christians knelt on a beach and were beheaded simply because of the profession of their faith in Christ. So we submit to those in authority. But secondly, we act responsibly. I, I love that word responsibility because it's easy to understand. You know what it means? If it confuses you because it's a big word, you might write this down. Responsibility simply means that I have the ability to respond. It's within my capacity to get this thing right. If you were a follower of Jesus Christ, you have the ability to respond in a way that brings honor to him. Why? Because he is living in you. The Spirit of God is in you. You can do this by His grace. So pay what you owe. Do what's right. But then he says we give honor. This is um, my opportunity just to remind you as I search the Scripture. You never see Paul or Peter saying of any of these emperors that I just mentioned. Not my emperor. Not my Caesar. It's not in Scripture. They honored them. And so should we. So sometimes there's a moment you just want to make things practical. So I don't know who's here and who will be on each of our campuses. But I wonder if we have any of these groups. If we have any who are present or retired or former military. If we have any law enforcement officials. Of officials, if we have any first responders, any elected officials, anybody that works for the government, would you just stand right now and let us take a minute and honor you for what you're doing? Thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your service all across this room, and I'm confident on each of our campuses. It's not that hard. That's what God calls us to do. Why? Because we're citizens of two kingdoms. That's what you got to remember. This world is not your home. And that's why really my favorite part of this message and the one that ties it back to Jesus is the reality that as citizens of God's kingdom, how we respond to authority, just like how we respond to anything else, should be different. Listen to what Paul says in Philippians 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control 
will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Scripture makes it clear that ultimately God's got this. We were in New York this week, and I had a whole day where I spent just some personal time with my little girl, and we were walking around, and at some point she said, Dad, what's that song that goes like, da 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 And I said, it's, he's got the whole world in his hands. And so she said, yeah. And so then we sang it together. He's got the whole world in his hands. Sing it. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. That's right. And maybe you just need to be reminded of that. At the end of the day, either God is sovereign and he's in control or he's not. I choose to believe that he is. And, and so these things that kind of wear us out, man, we voice the truth. We stand up with concern. But at the end of the day, we trust God and we do it with grace and with honor, respecting those that we have the obligation to serve. Whether that's a boss we don't like, whether that's a parent that's not living for Christ, or whether that's a president or other leader that you may have concerns about. I know this. If in your life you're professing to be a follower of Christ, but your conversation or, or your social media or just who you are in your little corner of the world talks more about these earthly things than you do your spiritual life, then you've got things out of order. This passage is interesting because as I've read already, Paul uses it a couple of different times. Not just here in Romans 13, but you know where he says, you know, if you, if you owe them money, give them money. If you owe taxes, give them taxes. If you do this, do that. If you, if you, there's another passage that sounds like that. I wonder where he got it from. Do you know? Let me show you. Jesus, they were always trying to trick Jesus. They were always trying to trick Jesus. So the religious leaders came to him one day and they said, we know how to trick him. Uh, he says he's king of the, of the Jews, so let's, let's ask him, should we pay taxes? So they come to him and they bring him a coin and they say, all right, Caesar says we owe taxes. It's April 18th now. April 18th, should we pay our taxes? And so Jesus says in Matthew 22 and verse 18, knowing their evil intent, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying taxes. So they brought him a denarius, tiny coin. It'd be like just a little bit of money. And he asked them, whose image is on this? Who, whose inscription is on this? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said, so give it back to Caesar. It's Caesar's. And give to God what is God's. And then it says, when they heard this, they were amazed so they left him and went away. And so all of you could kind of quote probably the old King Jimmy version of that. It says, render unto Caesar. Yeah, you, you've heard that. That's a very familiar passage. But why did they walk away amazed? I, I think it's because of this. Jesus has the coin. And he says, Who's, whose image is on this? Caesar's. Okay. And he hands him the coin. 
So give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But then just imagine that his finger extends and he just taps him on the heart. And he says, but give to God what is God's. You see, the Bible says in the very first chapter, God created man in what? His image. So Caesar's image or our president's images may be on our currency. But you... Oh, whoever you are, wherever you were born, whatever your life situation, you were created in the image of God. You are his image bearer. We call that the Imago Dei. You have God's image on you. And Jesus was saying, you are in God's image. So give you to God. That's the issue. The issue isn't Who's in the state house or who's in the white house or who's in the palace? The issue is whether or not you've given you to God. That's why in chapter 12 and verse 1, Paul would say, Do you not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good and his perfect and his pleasing will. You can't live Romans 13 until you do Romans 12, 1 and 2. And so what I want to ask you this Palm Sunday is, is have you presented your life before God as a living sacrifice? Because until we do that... <laughs> We can say Hosanna all we want, but it's kind of just like an empty pep rally. But man, when we've given ourselves to God, then, then what we do is acknowledge that he's our king. So if you remember, I, I prayed earlier that we would have a couple responses to this. We're dealing with this passage because we're not going to skip over anything in Scripture. But for some of you, the issue has nothing to do with our government. But you're a professing follower of Christ, but you're not living in submission even to His authority. And you need to adjust that in just a few moments. Others of you, man, you're going through life, and quite honestly, you're living as if you're king of the world. And whether you acknowledge that, you in your heart know it. You've just made the conscious decision that you're not going to be guided by some old book or some thoughts or some belief that you haven't ascribed to. Here's what I'm going to tell you. According to Scripture, the Bible says that every one of us are born separated from God because of our sinful nature. It's not who we are or what family we were born into. It's just the way we're created. And then the Bible says that if that's left undealt with, we'll spend forever separated from him. But then the Bible says God doesn't want that for anyone. And that's why at this season of the year, we turn our hearts to Jesus and what he meant to us. The Bible says that God so loved this world that his only son Jesus came to this earth. And he lived a perfect, sinless life. And then he gave his life. Listen, though he was God, submitting to the governmental authorities to the extent of dying on the cross. 
And so that's why Jesus would say, as he was preparing his disciples for his death, taking bread, giving things, breaking it, giving it to them, he would say, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After that, in the same way, after the supper, he would take the cup and say, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for you. Jesus wanted us to know that there is a way that we can live according to his desires. And that's just by trusting in what he's already done. That's why in just a moment after I pray on all of our campuses, we're going to take this little cup and this little piece of bread and we're going to remember the Lord's death. Just like Christians have been doing for 2,000 years. Because we believe that what Jesus did on that day gives us the ability to live as citizens of two kingdoms on this day. So would you pray together with me? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, but maybe you're here and, and you just need to do some business even before we come to what we call the Lord's table. You, you need to, uh, maybe as a Christ follower, just repent of not trusting Him as the King, not living under His authority, not yielding control of all that you are to Him. Maybe there's some specific habitual sins that you're struggling with. And you would confess those, agree with God. I know this is not okay. I know this isn't contrary to your commands. You know, what we believe is that you can go straight to God. You don't, you don't need me or another pastor. You have what we call soul competency. You have the ability in your soul to deal directly with God. maybe you're here and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ you've never understood what I've tried to weave in about three different times in my talk which is for the fourth time that God does love you but you were born separated from him he doesn't like that that's why Jesus died but death did not defeat Jesus Jesus rose from the grave and because he's alive you can trust that what he's done is enough Regardless of your life state, you can say, Jesus, I'm ready to follow you as my king. Now, I need to let you know, this is far more than just an intellectual assent or belief. Probably if you're in this room, you have some level of that. But some of you have never submitted to him as king. You can do that today. You could cry out, Lord Jesus, I know I need you. I'm a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I believe you died for me. I know you're alive today. You are the king. So I repent. I'm turning to you. I want to follow you for the rest of my life. this day on things are different 
thank you. Heavenly Father, I thank you that in this moment we can, even when talking about government, can just be reminded that Jesus, in in prophecy about your coming, we were told the government is on your shoulders. So whatever we face here, we can make it because we know that here is not our home. We know that you are our king. So just a moment as we take of this little piece of bread and as this little cup of juice, Lord, we're going to do this in remembrance of you because you, King Jesus, you're the one who's changed everything. We trust you, even as I ask this in Jesus' name. I want to invite you, if you're a Christ follower and you feel like it's spiritually the right thing for you to do today, um, to take out this little cup, you just turn it upside down. We're going to do this relatively quickly there in your seats. Um, Take this little piece of bread. When Jesus gathered with his disciples, think of it as a a loaf like we might get at Panera. They were taken from one loaf and they were passing it. And really as the church, we're one body. one coming together in this moment but Jesus would take that piece of bread that he would hold in his hand and and he would say this is my body not literally it wasn't literally his body it doesn't become his body today as some believe but it's a reminder the body of Jesus the the physical body of Jesus hung on that cross we're going to spend some time on this on Good Friday he hung on the cross he suffered shame and pain because of you and me he did it as a punishment for our sin so we do this in remembrance of him and you might just peel back the top of that little cup this is juice that day it would have been what Jesus called wine took that cup it would have been a common cup as well that they would pass around the table and he would hold it up and he would say this in the same way represents my blood now this they would they would partially have to understand because they related to God through the shedding of blood through the sacrifice of animals the writer of Hebrews would later tell us there's no need anymore for the shedding of blood of of bulls or of sheep or or of lambs or goats because the Lamb of God was slain for our sins. That's why Jesus on that night would say, this is my blood, a new covenant for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Oh God, thank you for this time together in your word. We love you. We continue to worship you. We are sinners. We know that continues even after this moment. I like to think of myself as wretched, like the Apostle Paul. But I'm thankful for your grace and your goodness and your mercy. And Jesus, today, King Jesus, I'm thankful for your blood. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you now, even as we sing. In Jesus' name.